here at Mighty Parenting, we spend a lot of time talking about ways to connect with our kids, to parent better, to parent in a way that helps them to really come into their own and to become the people they're meant to be. We're trying to teach them emotional wellness skills, life skills, and give them everything they need to move forward in the world. As a parent, we need to have some of these skills. We need to be coming from a place of calm and getting rid of our own stress helps us do that. If you'd like to take a first step in that direction, pop on over to sandyfowler.com forward slash stress dash relief. I've created a free video with a downloadable inventory sheet, core strategies inventory that you can use to start ditching your stress today. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, the podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, a stress relief guide for moms and host of the Mighty Parenting podcast, reminding you that you really need to go to mightyparenting.com, grab our free email series on how to talk to your teen. A few emails over the course of a few weeks, and I'm getting great feedback from parents on how it's helping them adjust their communication and make progress with their teens. Our kids face a ton of academic pressure, and it is so much more than we ever experienced as teens. I know it's frustrating for parents to navigate with their kids because this pressure is huge, and so some kids are buckling under it. Some have given up. Some are doing great, but they're just pushing themselves so hard to do that. And that's not what we want for our kids. We want a better academic experience for our teen. And Adina Glickman gets that. She is the co-founder and co-director of the Academic Resilience Consortium. She's an academic coach. And in doing that, she leverages her 15 years as the director at Stanford University's Academic Coaching Program. And I think most importantly to me is she's a mom. She's walked this path. She has adult children now, so she knows what it's like. She knows what we're going through. And she is joining us today to give us a helping hand to explore how we can help our kids become resilient learners. Adina, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you so much, Sandy. I'm so happy to be here. I am too. You know, we had that chat And we had to keep stopping ourselves from like diving into the interview because you have so much knowledge and so much firsthand experience because this is what you've been doing. I mean, you were doing it for someone else for 15 years. And now in your coaching business, you are on the front lines with our kids. So you know what's happening and what's working and what's not working. And you know what mistakes we're making or what things we don't know as parents. And while I'd love to touch on all of that, and we will get to those things, I think the first thing we need to do is go, what is a resilient learner? Because we toss around the word resilient, and I have not heard it combined with learners. So beyond, yeah, what do I do when my kid fails an exam or doesn't do as well as they wanted on something? I I don't know what that really means. Well, uh, that's a great first question. And, And I can describe what my understanding of a resilient learner is, which is that it's someone who has, uh, we sort of look at it holistically, 
Um, it's not just uh, how they're doing in school that makes them a resilient learner, but how they're doing in life. So I've, I've created sort of a, a model called the Resilient Learner, Eight Pillars of Success, of Student Success, that hopefully helps students and teachers and parents understand a little bit more thoroughly what goes into being a happy, successful young person whose job is going to school in addition to other things that they may be doing for jobs. So the eight pillars are focused on, first and foremost, their academic skills, their autonomous skills, the ones that they use free, free and clear of what other people are doing inside the classroom. And that's listening, that's watching, that's sitting, that's participating in discussion. That's however they show up and however they are, are absorbing and processing information in, in the classroom. And of course now in the classroom is at the kitchen table, but it's still within the formal structure of instruction. The second pillar um, is around autonomous skills outside of the classroom. And that is really focused on how they manage time, how they read, how they write, how they review their materials, how they develop something called metacognitive skills, which is really the ability to look at them, look at their learning and say, am I getting it? Does this make sense? Or what do I need to adjust about how I'm doing this so that I can have a deeper grasp of the material? So it's everything that happens outside of the classroom, everything that happens outside of formal instruction that they're on their own for. The third pillar is really around mindset. And Carol Dweck has done fantastic work in showing us that the brain is really a muscle and can be strengthened. And if we understand intelligence to be something that, that grows with effort, then we can really think about um, the setbacks, the normal setbacks, the disappointments, the rejections that are just part of life as calls to stick with it and maybe do things differently and continue with our efforts. That it's not simply a threshold of pass fail, it's a process of developing that muscle of our brain. The next pillar is really around belonging sense of belonging. And Greg Walton has done some fantastic research in this area that actually just demonstrates that when a student has a sense of belonging in their school, in their community, in their family life, and ideally all three, it improves their ability to, uh, to do their academic work when they feel like they're part of something and not an outsider. The next pillar is what I call specifically academic resilience, which is uh, really about how students think about and, and respond to failure and setbacks. Again, which are normal parts of, of their, their daily lives and their academic lives. Uh, you know, do they respond um, sort of brittly and say, well, now I'm sunk, or do they say, well, what can I get from this? Because I really believe that academic resilience is about learning. And it's, I wanna actually sort of take a, take a little detour here to talk a little bit about academic resilience as a term. Because I think resilience is often 
conflated with terms like persistence and grit. But I really understand resilience to be something, you know, grit and, and persistence are, are, are important things for, for our young people to possess. But that's, those are really traits of the individual. That's really about the person. Academic resilience is really about the relationship between the person and the context in which they find themselves. So if you think about, uh, you know, such a, a typical visual metaphor for resilience is the ball that bounces back. You know, how, do you, how well do you bounce back from adversity? How well do you adapt or adjust? And the, when you think about that visual metaphor, the ball can only bounce back when it hits a nice, crisp, hard surface. The ball cannot bounce back when it hits a mushy, soft uh, mattress or, or a comforter. It just plops. So the ability of the ball to bounce back has as much to do with what it's bouncing against as it does how inflated or deflated the ball may be itself. So academic resilience is one of those characteristics, one of those pillars of academic success, because it really helps the student shine a light on how they think about failure, how they think about success, and how they think about their ability to adapt and understand the context. Which leads to the next pillar, which is an understanding of the institution. Uh, students need to know what the norms are and the policies are that constitute the crisp surface or the flabby mattress against which they are bouncing. The next pillar is uh, a meaningful relationship with technology and that's extremely hard to come by right now because our relationship with technology is over the top intensified and ubiquitous because of the coronavirus. And so forming a meaningful relationship with technology really means thinking about choices. There are so many students who I talk to who just assume that part of being young is being on Facebook or you don't, you're not, you don't exist in the world unless you have an Instagram story going. And those are not givens. I remember back in the day when, when the phone rang, you were supposed to run and pick it up. And that translates now to when notifications come through, you're supposed to drop everything and pay attention. When uh, someone likes what you've done, you're supposed to pay attention to that. What we give our attention to, I've, I've read about pe people who think about the attention economy, what we pay attention to has meaning and we have to be thoughtful about it. So I, I like students to think about where they give their attention, especially when it comes to technology. Finally, the, 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 la the, the last pillar is the entire scope of the human experience, spiritual, nutritional, financial, environmental factors all play a part in how well a student does their job. I think about the equivalent of you know, us parents who are doing our jobs, either in the home, raising our families, or out of the home, uh, earning money for the work that we do. We're not just about our jobs, and students are not just about school. We're about life-work balance. We're about having love and joy in our lives. 
We're about our spiritual connections and our community connections and students are also. So those are the eight pillars. And what I think about is this can give parents an opportunity to ask questions in different areas than they might normally be asking questions. When you see your student is struggling, it may not be just about uh, you're, you're just burned out on, on the Zoom screen. It may be that their sense of belonging has really suffered as a result of being, uh, being isolated. Uh, or it may be that they do have a skill challenge that they need to develop. So it really just gives parents a, a way to ask different and richer questions. There is so much here that I want to dive into. And I think where I'm going to start is going back to, well, I guess it's academic resilience and the understanding of the institution. Because when our kids are struggling in school or when they're buckling under the pressure, as we talked about, we tend to just focus on our child and what they're doing. And this whole metaphor that you have about the bouncing ball really struck me because yes, the ball can be overinflated, slightly deflated. It can, it can have you know, a, a piece of, it can have a nail stuck in it that would you know make it go wonky. Like there, yes, there are things that can happen to the ball and, and you cover those in other pillars. And yet there is also the institution. So I'd like to understand what we can do. Like, what does this mean for us as parents helping our kids understand the institution and how the institution impacts their resilience as a learner? Well, that's a great question. And I think that the, the overarching institutional concept we have to make sure we help our students understand, and this is not specific to, to institutions themselves, it's just the concept of grades. You know, and not every single school has grades, but pretty much by and large, they do. And when you think about what it means to have uh, a system in which uh, there are uh, rewards and punishments for different, uh, different grades, uh, then, then we're sort of contradicting our efforts at saying it's okay to fail. And mostly everybody does say it's okay to fail because we learn so much from it. But if in fact you fail a class, it's not okay, even if you've learned from it and there are consequences to it. And the consequences are completely outside of the, of the internal and necessary consequences of feeling however you feel about that failure um, and learning from it and changing how you how you approach it the next time, it means that the institution has sort of decided that we're a certain way or we are entitled to certain things. So simply acknowledging to students, you know, when the grownups say, yeah, you're not crazy. That's not, that's not okay, that is a contradiction. That's incredibly helpful to young people. When the grownups say, yeah, we're flawed. I am seeing so many issues with that situation. Well, first of all, it's it just been one of my soapbox items, but I don't have an answer. So I tend not to complain about it because 
I have no idea what to do. I just know we did a combination of school, homeschool, and school with our kids. And Mm -hmm. there was such a difference in that time period where we were homeschooling and there were no tests, there were no grades and everyone else was concerned about it. And how are they going to take tests when they go back? And I said, well, when they're going to need to take tests, when they get older, when they're in high school and we'll need to do standardized tests, or if they're going to go back in the school system, I said, then we'll do some tests at home. And we talked about our kids. We talked to our kids about that. We said, test taking is a skill. That is another skill to learn. And we approach the testing and those things, not so much as measuring what they know, but an attempt to measure what they know that may or may not be a valid attempt and, and teaching that there are skills around that. Unfortunately, they didn't have test anxiety because I see those problems coming up for kids too, right? They can know that material inside and out. They just, they have test anxiety and that doesn't come out for them. That doesn't work for them. So I can see issues with, as you said, the way the kids view themselves, that they are tracked or pigeonholed based not on who they are, what they know, or what they're capable of but how well they test or yes, there are other aspects to grades too. And I know a lot of teachers work really hard to try to balance those things out because they recognize it too. We just haven't come up with a better system for large groups of people. And I also see where there's a problem for parents in that when you talked about, there are consequences to our kids failing a class and we're there and we're with our kids. We love our kids. We want a good future for them. And And we can see that they know this information or they get the concepts and, or, or maybe they don't get it absolutely completely and fully, but they certainly get it enough for what they need. And yet they're, they're running into these brick walls, these institutional walls around what they're able to, to show and do in the classroom. And we don't want them to be pigeonholed or tracked or have their life changed based on that. So I can see us then getting over-involved in a place where we really shouldn't be doing that if we want to help our kid, really help our kids. So there's the kid side, there's the parent side, there are all these things. And I would love to know beyond, yes, talk to our kids about it, but are there things that we can do beyond that conversation? Are there things that we can actually do with our child or have them do with the institution to to smooth that out? I think that's, you know, that's a fair, that's a fair question. And, and the, the danger of over-involvement lurks at every corner. I think that, you know, most of a parent's energy should be communicated in believing in our kids and believing in what they're capable of and having faith in their ability to be, to grow into themselves and become wonderful human beings. Because so much of the message that they get at school, both academically and socially is often, you suck or you're not good enough or somebody else is better. And if a kid can't go to their parents and go home and feel that absolutely unconditional belief and love, then they really struggle. 
So I, I want to really emphasize how important it is that your child know that you believe in them, even when the school doesn't. And so what gets in the way of parents being able to believe in their own kids is where the rest of that energy should go. It's not in getting involved in the school. It's not in telling the student how to advocate for themselves. You know, some instructions, some suggestions are always, you know, can always be a good idea. But mostly it's what's getting in the way of you believing in how great your kid is. And that ties into some of the discussions we've had on prior shows where we've discussed the ideas of nurturing our children's interests. So I could see that being a great place for us as parents to put our energy of finding ways to help feed the interests and the curiosity that they do have, the areas that they, they show um, talent or ability or capability in to help them. I, I don't want to say help them nurture that to, to create an environment in which they can deep dive and they can have the experience of being a different person than the person they end up being in school. Mm -hmm. You know, I gave a talk once and afterwards the mom came up to me and said, um, you know, all my, all my son does is watch YouTube videos all day long. How do I get him to stop? And my first question was, well, what is he watching? You know, if a student's interests are so alien to a parent's, they may not even know that they're talking about a student's interests. They may simply look at it as, my kid's distracting themselves with YouTube videos. For all I know, what this student is doing is looking at nature videos and those fantastic time lapses of how flowers bloom. And what he's really into is the visual. And he's he should be encouraged to, to do a stop motion video of his own and experiment with that. There are all kinds of possibilities, but what stops parents, I think, from, from seeing that there are things to, to nurture is that we judge them and we say, that's not gonna get you a job or that's not gonna amount to enough or that's, you know, that's all well and good, but first you have to pass math class. And so we sidetrack our students into thinking that we are opposing them and standing up for the school instead of standing up for who they are and what matters to them. So if, if, you're, if your kid is spending all day, you know, or every, every moment that they're not in school gaming or on their, you know, on their phone looking at videos or connecting with their friends, start with that and say, tell me about your friends. What are they up to? What's happening on Instagram? What are the best stories that you see and why, why are they good? What makes a good Instagram story? Engage, you know, engage them in the thing that matters to them, even if it doesn't matter to you. Because what that conveys is who you are, my son, my daughter, is just fine. And I want to get to know that. And if I have an opportunity to guide or inform, I hope I'll be invited. Do you have tips or suggestions for us as parents learning how to ask those questions. I know I'm huge on 
having those kinds of conversations with my kids and asking those questions. And yet when you said, if they're spending you know, all their time connecting with friends, at least in this couple seconds that we had, I just blanked out. I'm like, okay, well, what do I do with that? And when you said, okay, what's happening on Instagram? What are the best, the less two, what are the best stories and what makes a good story? Cause now I can see where that can lead to a deeper conversation or some ideas. And maybe that's just a great example of a parent getting caught up in the, you know, the, how is this going to play out kind of a thing? Just like you said, we get caught up in the grades in the school and how's that going to get you a job? Maybe I'm just getting caught up in how does this conversation move my kid forward? But I don't know. Are, are there tips or strategies or ways that we can grow to learn how to ask those really good questions? Well, it's funny because what you're really talking about is intrinsic curiosity is just saying, you know, seeing something that's new to you or completely diff- different or alien to your own vocabulary and, and not assuming that you're supposed to know something about it and actually allowing yourself to be curious. You know, parenting is this lifelong job that the job description changes every day and there's no, there's no training. And so I think as parents, we always think we're supposed to know how to do this. And we forget to be curious about it. And one of the things that we can be curious about, not only, you know, how, you know, what, what's an Instagram story and what makes a good one, we can be curious about who our kids are and what kind of parents they need us to be. So that's a question that I think most parents don't know that they can ask their kids. You know, are you getting what you need from me as a parent? Especially when we have more than one kid, we think, uh, why are they so different? I'm the same parent, they came out of me, or I adopted both of them and raised them in the same environment. Why are they so different? Because they're different people and they need of us and ask of us as parents different things. And one of the best things I think that we can do for our kids is to let them teach us, let them, let them, uh, let them shape us a little bit. This all ties back into, in my mind, your eight pillars, because you cover like everything under the sun. You're not telling us, Hey, here's the problem. If your kid's having a problem, you need to go here. What I hear you saying is, okay, if your child's having a problem, here are eight different areas to explore with them to try to figure out where the problem really is. And it, we tend to go to one or two places when it could be any of these eight or combinations of them. Exactly. That's exactly it. It's a, it's the good news is that there are a lot of areas to, to, to look for you know, the not so good news is that it's a lot of moving pieces and there can be a lot of things that interact with each other that can be contributing to a problem. So we have communication. We're talking with our kids. We're trying to learn more about them as people. Let them know that they're okay with us. You do a lot of this with kids and you learn a lot about them and know their responses to things. And you've said that one of the things you love is that you get to tell kids things most grownups won't tell them. So what are some of those things that you get to tell them that we just don't say? Oh, 
parents aren't perfect. We're figuring it out just like you are. Um, but plus 20, 30 years of experience. Um, schools aren't perfect. One of the things that I get to tell students that most people won't tell them is that having, having worked in higher education for much of my career and having gone to many schools myself, school is not built for students. School is built or the systems in schools are built to function as systems and students are only one part. And so when I talk about understanding the institution, sometimes it's helping a student make sense of the fact that they feel like their, their administration doesn't care about me. And it's not that their administration doesn't, it's not that their administrators are uncaring people or don't care about this person. It's that in order to maintain the system and keep it functioning, care for people may not be the highest priority. So I get to tell students that education is not always the promise that they've been told. Formal education is not always the promise that they've been told. And also that education is different from learning. Yeah, that's one of my favorites, except my experience was at the other end. It's like, yeah, I went through school. I got great grades and I would come out of things and go, I learned nothing in that class. Or, or what I, you know, I can tell you what I learned in, in the fingers of one hand, and yet I got a great grade. And I work with and talk to other people who learned more. They just didn't get the grades that I got mm -hmm. because I had a different skill set. So when you tell kids these things, what kind of responses do you get from them? Uh, very often it's, wow, I've never heard that before, or that's a new way of thinking about it. Um, sometimes it's scary for them you know, because uh, if, if you've been sitting on the bus and saying, wow, this bus driver knows how to drive a bus, and all of a sudden you realize the bus driver is sometimes clueless and sometimes groping and trying to figure things out, it can be scary. Um, that's part of what being a teen and a young adult is, is starting to see that the, the protection and the safety that we uh, expect and imbue our parents with and our teachers is is not as complete as we, we would like it to be and that we become responsible as young people for maintaining our safety and pursuing our goals and making things happen for ourselves. So I think it I think some students have said it opens up a different way of thinking about things. it empowers them a little bit more but it can be both. It's scary and it's empowering. One of the things I appreciate in what you said was, yeah, we're still figuring out as parents plus 20 or 30 years of experience. I am all about being honest and forthright with our kids and going, I don't know the answer to that. Let's find it out together and, and doing things like that. And yet they're sometimes in the way that I hear people talk about talking to your kids and going, well, I don't know either. I have no idea. I mean, to me, there, there's a little balance of, like you said, keeping a little of that security for them and going, yeah, I'm figuring things out too. And I have all this experience that we can draw on. 
it's the same thing you're doing. You are, you're living your life, you're making decisions and you're drawing on past experience to do that. I just have a lot more experience to draw on. So let's look at my experience. And I, as I'm saying that, I also hear myself going, that's an opening to say, and let me yes. hear about your experience. What experience have you had or what have you seen happen in this area? And they might have none to draw on. And so you might decide together to draw on just your experience. But I, I think that opens that conversation. And I think that talking about that experience still gives our kids um, some mm -hmm. of that security that they need. Like that, yeah, the bus driver may be figuring things out, but he's still there. Right. He didn't just take his hands off the wheel and, and he's, he's not jumping out the door. He's not just going to like take off on me. And, and he's not completely clueless. Like he might not know exactly what to do, but he knows where he can get a map or he can get out, you know, because if he gets out the phone and he asks whatever powers that be, <laughs> whatever phone you have, Hey, how do I get here? Or take me there. And the phone doesn't work. He knows how to get a map. He has somebody else he can call. And, and that is there. So I feel like that's a great opportunity to be able to talk to our kids and go, right. and this is how you move forward in the world. Like you gain experience, you do stuff, you see what happens, and then you can draw on that. That's such a great question that, that you, that you said earlier, you know, what's your experience? One of the things that I think is so difficult for students, young people in general to, to do right now is to hear their own voices, to hear their own internal reflections or their own, internal monologue about what's happening to them because so much of their attention is some of so much of what the, the voices literally and figuratively that they get is through their screens and, and from the the infinite world of the, of the internet and so helping your student hear their own voice reflect on themselves and say what was my experience and what did I get from that and what was that like and how did that feel and what did I like about it? What was confusing about it? Many kids don't know how to ask those questions of themselves. And that's a beautiful opening for parents to say, you do have experiences. Let's see if you can, you know, you can make sense of them and, and, and bring them forward so that they are conscious parts of how you now solve problems. I love what you said about, about the bus driver who isn't just jumping out of the bus, has made a commitment to do, to, a commitment to do his job or her job and an ability based on experience and a variety of experiences to solve problems. And that's what adults do. We say, of course we have problems, but we solve them. We have a commitment to solving them. We don't, we don't just walk away from them. And we use all of our experiences all of our successes and failures, all of the things that we did that didn't work, all the things that we learned from those experiences, we use those to inform how we solve problems moving forward. And we all have the opportunity to do that now with your eight pillars as a guide to say, check in on this area, check in, you know, check in on the academic skills. What, what kind of autonomous academic skills do they have? Is there an area where they could use some strengthening? Same thing with 
I'm sorry, the academic skills, the autonomous skills, the mindset, belonging was such a big one too, to me, when you talked about that, especially with COVID. Now we pre-record, you know, vaccinations are going out, rates are dropping. And yet here in the U.S., we're still way higher than we were last spring. So who knows where we're going to be when this actually airs, but life is not going to be what it was. And our kids still are, are not going to have the full experiences that they were having pre-COVID yet, I don't think. So that would impact belonging, I would think, a lot. Because clubs, organizations, actually seeing friends. And, and I know one of my daughters, she has a friend who she's really close with at school, in college. And this girl's just not, not wired for long-distance relationships she still cares and trying to maintain that relationship virtually even before COVID was really hard. So I know there are kids who, who may feel like, oh my gosh, I like, I barely have any friends left. I, I don't belong anywhere. I'm, I'm not part of the swim team anymore. I'm, I'm not in, you know, I'm not in the geocaching club. I'm mm. not in the chess club, whatever. So if we find that belonging is an issue, especially during COVID, do you have any suggestions specifically for that, both in and outside, inside well, and outside of COVID? Well, I think one of the one of the most important things that that we're doing now as parents is using the benefit of our long view to say this isn't going to be the rest of your life. We've had enough years, you know. We've had our 30, 40 years to say there's other kind, there's other stuff. And we know that there's going to be a future, and young people don't have that uh, that uh, length of of experience, and so it's much more difficult for them to project into the future and say, "Yeah, it's going to be different," because it's so much, such a large proportion of their lives has has been in isolation or dealing with COVID. So we have to remind them, it's not always going to be like this. It's and it is going to get better, and we know that. I think that in the interim, uh, addressing a sense of belonging, I mean, I, I guess it, uh, my, my instinct would be to simply raise it as a question and say, you know, one of the things that, you know, say to my kid, one of the things that, that makes such a difference in, in how, how we do in school is whether we feel like we belong. How's that going for you? aside from school, also just our happiness, our mental and emotional wellness. There's so much that depends on that. And so I think I've answered some of my other questions, which would your answer to that, I feel would be raise the question with your child, ask them what they think about it, what they see, and then just carry that conversation forward. But, but from the standpoint of asking them their thoughts, their views, their opinions, unless mm -hmm. they specifically ask our advice, or if we really feel like there's something we want to share, then what I always teach parents is then you ask, would you like to know about my experience in this area? Or would you like an opinion from me? Or would you like to hear my thoughts on this? And sometimes they say no. And it's like, darn, it's so hard to close your mouth at that point. Cause you know, you've, you've gotten there and you're like, and you're asking, you're going, do you want me to tell you? Do you want me to tell you? And they're like, no. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's hard to not do any talking, but you know, the more we can say back to our kids, what they're saying, the easier it is for them to hear their own voices. 
True, true. Well, Adina, thank you so much for sharing this insight with us. Where can listeners find you online if they want more from you? They can go to my website at adinaglickman.com. And I would love to hear from you and hear from parents' feedback, uh, what, what works, what doesn't work. I continue to learn because I'm only my experiences. And of course, we will have that link in the show notes, both on mightyparenting.com and in the podcast notes as well. Thank you, Mighty Parents, for being here, for listening, for being part of our community. Remember, if you're here and you're listening, you are a Mighty Parent. You got this. And I will see you next week. <laughs>